0: and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie.
1: Let us bow our heads together. The author of 1 John is uncomfortably direct, Holy One. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But some, quite a few of your white followers, are having some trouble with this particular line of scripture. The legislature passed and the governor signed into law a bill that prohibits the teaching of so-called divisive concepts, like critical race theory in public schools, which is one of the most important places young hearts and minds learn how we've collectively done things wrong and what we must do to make things right. It's as if they don't know what will happen when we admit how we've missed the mark. But it says it right there in the next verse. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But first, we must confess We must confess that our social construction of race and institutionalized racism perpetuates a racial caste system that relegates black people and people of color to the bottom tiers. It is sinful. We must confess that the legacy of slavery, segregation, and the imposition of second-class citizenship on black Americans and other people of color continue to permeate our daily living. It is sinful. Just as the psalmist said, we know our transgressions and our sin is always before us, but we must confess it. Break our hearts, Holy One, and break our pride. Bring us to confession so that justice might roll on like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We pray in the name of our teacher, Jesus whose skin color would have been uncomfortably dark for some of his followers today. Amen. The sermon this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world they were yours and you gave them to me and they kept your word now they know that everything you have given me is from you for the words that you gave me to me gave to me i have given to them and they have received them and know in truth that i came from you and they have believed that you sent me i am asking on their behalf i am not asking on behalf of the world but on behalf of those whom you gave me because they are yours All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, you protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except for the one destined to be lost, so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Of all the things that Jesus is credited with doing in his ministry, praying is one of the things he does most consistently and most often. I mean, this is not surprising, though, right? Of course, Jesus prays a lot. He's Jesus, and he's a preacher. That's what preachers do. We pray. This is one of the things they forget to warn you about in the ordination process, that once you become a minister, you will never not be off the hook for praying. We are the designated prayers. We pray in worship before the fellowship dinner at City Hall at the hospital bedside to open the luncheon in the trustees meeting over the newborn baby at the graveside and at the Capitol. Well, some of us really aren't allowed to do that anymore, but you get the idea. Indeed, Jesus was a praying machine. Jesus prayed by himself, in public, in small groups, early in the morning, in the wilderness, on the mountaintop, at the table, before healings and after healings. Jesus prayed when he was in trouble, and he prayed for other people. It seems to me that the only situation missing is a prayer before a sports ball tip-off. We are familiar with the model Jesus offered the disciples for prayer. Pray in this way he says, and then launches into the Lord's Prayer. People can get very cranky about the Lord's Prayer, especially if the language is not traditional. When this happens, I ask if they would prefer we use Matthew's translation or Luke's translation. They are not identical, after all. In addition to a lot of praying, pastors do a lot of crankiness management. The Lord's Prayer is not the only model of praying Jesus gives us, though. According to the text this morning, Jesus is the OG of the sneak-a-preach. You are familiar with the sneak-a-preach prayer. I've explained it before. A sneak-a-preach prayer is a prayer that begins with, Dear God, slips in a short homily, and finishes with, Amen. The sneak preach is usually targeted at one or more persons listening to the prayer. Most people are first exposed to the sneak preach at their grandparents' dinner table. Grandparents are notorious for sneak preaching to grandchildren at family dinner, usually something that includes requests for procreation within the marriage covenant or otherwise making good decisions. I find the sneak-a-preach model of prayer is best used to open city council meetings or state legislative sessions. Sneak-a-preach prayers often drop little statistical truth bombs between scriptural references, something like, gracious God, we know that there is much work to be done in our state. We know that nearly a quarter of our state's children live in poverty, and we pray, Holy One, that our elected officials will have the courage to address the needs of the least of these instead of upgrading the executive suites in Chesapeake Arena or whatever it's called these days. It is not uncommon for preachers to be accused of sermonizing during prayers. Are you praying or are you preaching, people ask with an accusing tone. Yes, we reply without hesitation. We do not pause in answering, nor do we feel guilty about preaching while we're praying because we learned it from Jesus. We begin to overhear Jesus' sneak a preach prayer somewhere in the middle of it. It actually starts back in the first, chapter, first verse of chapter 17. The text tells us that he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And then John transcribes a 26 line verse prayer. In the wider context of the Gospel of John, the Scripture we read this morning comes after a fairly lengthy portion, often called the farewell discourse. This is the beginning of the end for Jesus. In the next chapter, chapter 18, we find the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. We can reasonably assume that he knew his end was near. His time in Jerusalem had not been quiet. He was aware that the authorities had been put on notice. Troublemakers would not be tolerated, and he would soon be put down. So Jesus took his last few moments with the disciples to prepare them for what's coming next. And while he prays to God, he speaks to the disciples. They have, after all, spent the last three years in ministry together they left their jobs, their homes, their families, and any sense of security to follow him around, watching him, learning from him, serving alongside him, perhaps they thought the end of Jesus would mean the end of them. It is possible that they could not imagine what they would do without him. They could not imagine carrying on They could not imagine where they would go next, what they would do next. It is quite possible that they were already contemplating how they would re-enter their old lives, go back to normal, whatever that means, return to the status quo. Nobody, nope, nope,' says Jesus, while he's speaking to God." They will continue. He expects it. Protect them, Holy One, Jesus prays. Sanctify them, he adds, which is a theological catch-all for anoint them, support them, make them just. Clearly, Jesus does not want the disciples to hang up their sandals after he is gone, for this is not the kind of prayer one offers for couch potatoes. Rather, this is the kind of prayer that sets expectations. This is the kind of prayer that casts a vision. This is the kind of prayer that sparks imagination. The prophet, as theologian Walter Brueggemann calls Jesus, engages in futuring fantasy. The prophet does not ask if the vision can be implemented, for questions of implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. The imagination must come before the implementation. Our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. The same royal consciousness that make it, impossible, make it possible to implement anything is the one that shrinks the imagination, because imagination is danger. Thus, every totalitarian regime is frightened of the artist. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing future's alternative to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. So maybe Jesus could see the look of defeat in their eyes, and maybe he knew they were still struggling with the idea that this revolution didn't involve a violent insurrection. Jesus reminds them that there will be an after to the crucifixion, but he does not expect the disciples to retreat home. Rather, he expects them to become more engaged, more involved, Speaking to God, but directing his words to the disciples, Jesus says, just as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The work is ever before the disciples. Jesus imagines that they will do greater things than he. And oh, what a gift that was to them. Jesus prayed about the disciples not being of the world and and how the world will hate them as a result. Theologian Ana Yelsey Valesco Sanchez reminds us that there's nothing inherently toxic in these words, and yet how this passage has been interpreted and applied has caused harm. Consider the outspoken, self-identified Christian who says or does something that is poorly received but who then doubles down by pointing to this idea that they have a biblical right to live by different rules and to bear no consequences. Or the employer who finds out that the healthcare they pay for provides birth control, immediately cancels the p- plan, and then cries persecution when held accountable. Or the parent who protests trans children in the same school as their child are told they have to, the right to go somewhere else, but who then claims exclusion on the basis of their faith, or the Christian shock jock that goes on a racist rant against Black Lives Matter, loses sponsors as a result, and then whips their fan base into a frenzy about standing firm in the faith. It seems unlikely, Valesco Sanchez continues, that this is what Jesus meant as he was calling the disciples to follow in his footsteps Those are footsteps that show the way to challenging authority and unjust system, healing those in pain and pursuing relationships with those on the furthest margins. Being in the world but not of the world was what Jesus was doing when he touched those with leprosy instead of pushing them farther away and ate with sex workers instead of shaming them. He says the world will hate the disciples for choosing transformative and radical love for the people around them because it will lead them to take on entrenched power structures and challenge the empire. Jesus gives the disciples something to hang on to after the crucifixion. He expects them to continue the work when he is gone, and he knows the disciples are going to need all the help they can get, so he asks for it in front of them, so that they will know that he knows that they know that his death doesn't end the mission. There were still tables that need flipping. There are tables that still need flipping. But first, but first we must imagine that things can be different. It can be hard to know where to start, out there or in here. On one hand, the mess out there seems too big to handle, so let's focus on our own hearts. After all, who can solve the mess in Palestine? There has never not been fighting over there. Or the alarming and ever-creasing militarization of the police? Well, the alarming and ever-increasing number of dead black Americans seems to only make the police double down. This is how it always is. It is almost impossible to imagine anything different. But on the other hand, personal change can seem harder harder to achieve than peace in the Middle East or police reform. Perhaps we are always going to be unhappy, always stay when we should go or go when we should stay, that we will always sabotage any good that happens to us, that we will never deal with our trauma, that we will always do what we are supposed to do, stay in our lane, or always be the black sheep, always be addicted, always be in pain, always be overwhelmed, overfunctioning, or misunderstood. This is how it always is. It is almost impossible to imagine anything different. Almost impossible. Not impossible. For we have this story, this story of Jesus reminding the disciples, reminding us, to use our imagination. We've got to imagine that there is something better than a two-state solution and continued bombing. We've got to imagine that there's another way for our community to respond to crisis. We've got to imagine that we can write a different ending than the one we've been given. Indeed, it is perhaps the greatest gift Jesus gave to the disciples and to us, the ministry of imagination. There is work to do, there are tables to flip in the world and in our hearts. And the good news is that there is someone, with a capital S, who believes that we are up to the task. So it is that we will keep conjuring and proposing future's alternative to the dominant narrative the ministry of imagination. It is perhaps the greatest gift we can give ourselves and the world. We believe, Holy One, help our unbelief, amen.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.MayflowerUCC.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only, premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.